You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Amen. Our God does great things. Father God, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, that you would accept our worship as as glorifying to you, as honoring to you. I pray, Lord, that as uh, we start looking at your scripture this morning, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified through the words that are spoken through me. Lord, I open our ears and our hearts to what it is you would have us to see this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for those of you who um, were unable to make it last week, for whatever reason, I want you to know that we're taking a pause. We're taking a little bit break from Ecclesiastes for uh, until after Easter. And I'm doing a little little sermon series, a little three-part sermon ser- series on um, Easter and Jesus' life. And when I was thinking about switching the gears for this Easter season and doing a short sermon series, I had a I had the idea I'm going to do a birth story, which we talk, covered last week with uh, Elizabeth and and Mary meeting each other and all that stuff. And then I was like, I'm going to do, I want to do a story that highlights Jesus's life. And then obviously I want to talk about the resurrection next week, right? Um, but I didn't know which story I wanted to cover in this in between time. I didn't know what it was. So I I uh, if you were thinking about what story in the scriptures characterizes Jesus's ministry and his life, which one would you choose? Uh, would it be the healing of a blind man? Would it be uh, raising Lazarus from the dead? Would it be walking on water? Would it be the feeding of the 5,000, which is the only miracle that occurs in all four gospels? So I was sitting here and I was stuck for a little while. And I asked a friend, one of my pastor friends, I was like, do you, do you have an idea? And he's like, oh, I don't know. He kind of mentioned those that I mentioned earlier. And I was like, those are good, but I don't think that's what I want to go with. And then this story that we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 4 kept popping up. It started on a, a Saturday morning Bible study that I go to. We were going through the book of Luke, and this, this story came up. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I asked Corey what she thought, and she's like, you know what? This story keeps intriguing me in Luke chapter 4, this little mic drop moment from Jesus. And then it was also on an episode of The Chosen that I watched. And I was like, okay, well, maybe this is where we need to go. So I thought about it and I prayed about it. I reflected on it. And, and, and through that, I thought this would be a good place to highlight the ministry of Jesus. It's not one of his miracles. It's not one of the healings. It's, it's Jesus proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. So just to set the stage for you a little bit in Luke's gospel, uh, up to this point, we see we've seen Jesus's miraculous birth, conception and birth. We've seen uh, Jesus be baptized by John. Uh, Jesus had just gotten through being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He has made it through the temptation, and he's heading back to his home region and later to his hometown, where this account takes place in Luke chapter four. And so. Um, I want to make a couple of notes real quick about biblical authorship and how the Bible, the authors of the gospels would write their gospels. Uh, I've talked about it before, but it, it does bear repeating. Okay. The biblical authors all had their own reasons for writing the gospels the way that they wrote them. The gospel accounts, not only that, but biographical stories in, in the ancient times are a little bit different than we do them today. They weren't necessarily chronological in order. Yes, they wanted to tell stories about Jesus's life and ministry, but at the same time, they weren't as concerned with chronology or the order of the timelines. That wasn't as important to them as the theological implications behind the stories that they told. So, so why am I bringing this up? Well, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that in Matthew and Mark, this specific story takes place later in the gospels, later in Mark and Matthew. Okay, but Luke uses this event, this Jesus in Nazareth, 
in his hometown to set the stage for the mission of Jesus that Luke is presenting in his gospel. You see, Luke's gospel specifically was written to the outcast and to the Gentiles, those non-Jewish believers. He was writing to the outliers of society. He was writing for the poor and the broken and the needy and the oppressed. That was the purpose behind Luke's gospel. That was the audience that Luke was writing to. So Luke does rearrange some of the events in Jesus' life and ministry to help communicate that purpose in his gospel. That purpose in his gospel. The ministry to help communicate the purpose in the account. So Luke front loads this story to teach us and to prepare us for what the rest of his gospel is going to be about. How to read and interpret the rest of his gospel account. These events are true. And they are actually happen. They are simply rearranged to tell the story that Luke wants to tell. To highlight the theological truths about Jesus that he wants to communicate to the audience he is writing to. So with that in mind, know that we shouldn't be worried about this just because they don't tell stories the same way that we do. We should just know that the truth that is there is there the way that Luke wanted to present it. And also we should be comforted by the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired it. So it wasn't just Luke, not just Luke's hand. It was done through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you can be comforted in that if you were a little worried. Now, before we read the scripture, I want to pray and ask for the Lord's guidance. Father God, thank you so much for again, the opportunity to open up your word or that we are able to look at the scripture the way that you have revealed yourself to us and see the beauty of the gospel message or that the revelation of, of yourself is put in to words so that we can read and we can understand, but they are fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus and the accounts of his life, Lord, that he is the Messiah who came to save sinners to the Jews first and to the Gentiles Lord, that because none of us in here are Jewish. We can rejoice because you saved us. Lord, help us to see the beauty and the gospel message. Help us to see the importance of proclamation of the gospel message, of telling others about the, the goodness of Jesus. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. This is what we read. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues being praised by everyone. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is that Jesus was praised. When Jesus leaves the wilderness after being tempted by the devil, he goes back to Galilee, which is his home region. And at this time word was spreading about Jesus's ministry. Now in Luke's gospel, Jesus' ministry hasn't even started yet. So this goes back to what I was telling you earlier. In Luke's gospel, his ministry hadn't really started yet. But as I said before, Luke has rearranged the stories in a sequence that fits his theological framework. So we can look back on Matthew and Mark's, Luke's, Matthew and Mark's gospel and see that Jesus has made quite a splash throughout the region through his healing and through his teaching. Right at this point, Jesus is becoming famous. And notice this, we will talk about it a little bit more later, but Jesus was working in the power of the Spirit. He was doing the work he was set out to do through the power of God himself, through the Spirit. People were praising Jesus because of his teaching. There was an excitement. There was a recognition that Jesus was a superior teacher to all those other teachers they had heard. And they really liked what he had to say. Until they didn't. 
but that's, that's later. The name of Jesus was making a positive impact, but it wouldn't always be the case. This was something that they missed. You see, Luke wants us to see Jesus as a teacher, but he also wants us to understand that he is more than a teacher, that he is much more than just a good teacher. Now, Jesus for sure was a good teacher, but he wasn't simply a teacher. He was the king of the universe who put on flesh and came to dwell among us. He was God Almighty who had come for the salvation of those who will believe in his gospel message. Seeing him simply as a good teacher is seeing him wrongly. And the rest of the scripture that we're going to look at this morning is going to show us Jesus' teaching. And it's going to test those who hear whether they like Jesus' teaching or not. What it is that Jesus is teaching will either turn the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh or will continue to callous hearts. So in verse 16, we see this. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unscrolling the, unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written. We'll read what he read in just a minute, but Jesus is in the synagogue. Jesus arrives in the town where he grew up. Nazareth was a small town. It was a poor town of only about 400 people. Nazareth was nothing special when it came to influence and power in the Middle East. The ancient Jewish people would expect that their Messiah and his ministry would start somewhere of greater influence, with greater power, and with greater authority. But it started in the little town of Nazareth where Jesus was raised. Even some of Jesus' followers were confused about Jesus' starting point. In John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathanael asked, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good ever came out of Nazareth, so the answer to that is yes. What does Jesus do when he is in Nazareth? He went to the synagogue. Now let's not move past this. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, went to worship every Sabbath. This was a routine for Jesus. And if Jesus went to synagogue every Sabbath, shouldn't we as believers mirror Jesus's devotion to worship? Shouldn't we make every effort and every attempt to be at church in worship together every time that we can? How are we going to be like Jesus if we customarily avoid doing the things that Jesus customarily did? Worshiping with other believers isn't optional for the follower of Jesus. It should be our desire to gather together to praise the one who saved us. There are few reasons for us not to gather together that are good reasons, whether we're out of town working or we're sick or somebody died or something like that. But other than those extreme examples, worshiping with other believers is important to God for us. It's essential to our growth as followers of Jesus. We should mirror the importance of that Jesus placed on worshiping God. Jesus thought it was important, and so should we. Now, this is something that not everybody gets to do, right? But Jesus gets to teach in the synagogue. Have you ever wondered what a service like that in the synagogue would have looked like in Jesus' time? We have a pretty good idea. See, there was an attendant or a ruler over the synagogue, but there wasn't in small town specifically a priest to oversee each and every Sabbath. So what they would do is they would invite traveling rabbis to come in and teach at the gathering. That's how Jesus was allowed to teach this day. And during the service, they would do a couple of things, a lot like what we do today. They would read the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, the, hear O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. 
They would do a reading out of the Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would do a reading out of the prophets. And then the rabbi who was there to, to teach would take that information and he would weave them together as an explanation of how the Israelites or the Jewish people at the time were to um, take that information and live it out. They would wrap up with a blessing or a benediction given by the ruler of the synagogue. So in this instance, because of Jesus's fame in and around the region, he was invited to teach. He was invited to share and explain the scriptures. Now just think about it, to be a fly on that wall for just a moment while Jesus is explaining the scriptures to these Jewish people in the synagogue would be an amazing thing. Wouldn't it just to sit there and listen, to kind of see their reaction, to see their faces, to hear Jesus teach? In fact, Jesus' teaching on the scriptures for Luke is an important facet of his gospel. His ministry starts with the teaching and it ends with teaching after the resurrection. So, so Luke bookends Jesus' ministry with teaching on the scriptures. And we'll look at this a little bit next week. But in Luke chapter 24, verses 20, or verse 27, it says this, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that being Jesus, interpreted for them the things concerning himself, himself in the scripture. So Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel starts with him explaining the gospel and ends with him explaining the gospel. Jesus' ministry was to reveal and to explain to people the person and the work of God, the redemption of history. And he was doing this primarily by teaching. Jesus lived an expositional life, meaning that he revealed the true nature of God and the teachings found in scripture that he provided us with. This was what was missing in many of our churches today. Not all, but many of our, our, our churches, they aren't teaching people about the word of God as God presents it. Rather, they are appealing to the itching ears of the congregation. They are bending to the will of culture Rather than standing on the truth of the word of God, they dismiss it or they ignore it altogether. Now, as pastors, we aren't supposed to do anything but stand up, read the scriptures, explain the scriptures, and point to Jesus. That is our calling as pastors. Because the reality is, is scriptures are all about Jesus. However, we like to think the scriptures are about us. We like to insert ourselves into the stories. And we want preachers that make us feel good. Right? Telling us that if we do X, Y, and Z, if we follow this set of rules or pray this specific prayer, God is going to give me something that I want. The harsh reality, though, is that the Bible isn't about you. The scriptures aren't about you. It isn't about me. It's about Jesus. From the beginning to the end, it's all about Jesus. And God in his grace and his compassion has chosen to reveal himself to us through the pages of scripture. So, if the, so the Bible isn't about you, but the good news is it is for you, for you to see and for you to grasp the reality of salvation, the reality of redemption, to see and understand the depths of God's love and the reality of his wrath. So the scriptures were given to us through the grace of God to understand who he is. God did not have to reveal himself to us, but he chose to. So if we want to be a church following in the footsteps of Jesus, we need to preach and teach and instruct the way that Jesus does. Pointing past ourselves to the beauty and the glory of God. Proclaiming God's word. Not a word that we want to hear from God, but the words that are given to us by God. And as we will see, that's going to get Jesus in trouble. And it may end up getting us in trouble too, but we have to stand firm and not compromise on the truth that God has revealed to us in his scripture. 
Now in the synagogue, Jesus was providentially given the scroll of Isaiah. They had other prophets that they could have chosen for, but they gave him Isaiah. And many scholars, it's kind of funny because many scholars call Isaiah the fifth gospel because of how much it reports about the coming of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. Isaiah talks profoundly of the Messiah to come, giving characteristics of his life and his ministry. So it's no accident that Jesus was given this scroll. And then he unrolls the scroll and he finds a place from which he wants to read. Now, there's been some debate about this. Is Jesus actually chose the scripture or if it was assigned for him that day? It doesn't really matter either way. This scripture Jesus has given, whether providentially chosen or intentionally chosen, is about Jesus. Now, for me personally, I read it and I look at the plain reading of the text. And to me, it, it seems that Jesus readily and purposefully searched for this text in Isaiah that he was going to read. And here's what it said. Verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. This reading comes from Isaiah chapter 61 verses one and two, which is what we read earlier in this service. But there are a few things I want us to notice about these verses. First, the spirit of the Lord is on Jesus. This was mentioned earlier, but it's important for us to note that in Luke's gospel and in his follow-up account in the book of Acts, the spirit plays an important role in the life of Jesus and in the life of his followers in the early church. In just a short time, so we are in the fourth chapter of Luke, in just a short time that we've been in Luke, if you're reading Luke's gospel, this is what we see about the spirit of the Lord on Jesus. Chapter uh, three, verse 22 says this, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice from the heaven said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And even in Luke chapter 4 verse 1, then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And then in Luke chapter 4 verse 14, which we read just a minute ago, then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. Do you see this thread of the Spirit in Jesus's ministry. And so this opening statement of Isaiah in Luke's account of the gospel, we are meant to realize that Jesus is the one with whom Isaiah 61 speaks. So what was the mission of the Messiah, the anointed one, the one set apart with the spirit upon him three times in these verses, we see either preach or proclaim the proclamation of the good news. Who is the pre preaching and the proclamation towards the broken, the outcast, the sick, the hurting, the oppressed, the captives, those who recognize their need for the good news, those who see the reality of the world around them and long for something more. Jesus here is proclaiming the good news of grace for those who recognize their need for grace. The reality of these verses isn't that Jesus is going to make the poor wealthy, or that he is going to free people from prison, make all who suffer from blindness see, 
or even liberate the oppressed from under the thumb of Rome or any other regime. These are not physical ailments that Jesus is talking about. He is speaking about the more pressing need, the pressing need of spiritual renewal, of restoration and reconciliation, of redemption, of being put back into a right relationship with God. So what do we need to be freed from exactly? What are we bound to? We are bound to sin and we are bound to death. We are slaves of our own sinful desires and we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but Jesus came to set us free. The theme of release or freedom in this passage links back to um, the Torah, the Old Testament um, book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus chapter 25, that verse, that chapter describes what's called the year of Jubilee. And this is what Jesus is leaning on the year of Jubilee. If you're not aware, the year of Jubilee is a special time in the Jewish people's life. It was a time that only came around every 49 or 50 years. And during the year of Jubilee, the year of God's favor, if you will, every debt would be forgiven. All sold land would be returned to the original owner's family. Every slave would be set free. There would be restoration of people, land, and finances within Israel. Things would be set right. That's why there's so much excitement, because everything would go back to the way it should be. This is what Jesus came to do, not in a temporal sense, not in a physical sense, not in a restructuring of society, but in the hearts of individuals. He came to restore us, to cause us to rejoice in jubilation that we have been set right, that our debts have been set free. Those who are poor in spirit will be comforted. They will find riches in the good news of grace. Those who are slaves to sin will be set free to live a life devoted to God. They would be free from the slavery of selfish desires. Those who are spiritually bind will have their eyes open to see the beauty and the grace of the gospel to the redemption found at the foot of the cross. Those who are oppressed by the trappings of the world will be liberated. Those who are crushed in spirit will be renewed. The debt of sin will be paid a debt that we can't pay on our own, a debt that we all owe that debt that causes a chasm between us and our creator, that debt of death and separation from God has been paid. Those who trust and believe can rejoice at the salvation found in the arms of Jesus. That's the Lord's favor. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, and love are available for those who receive and humbly submit to Jesus, repenting of their sins and trusting in the creator of all. And what did Jesus say there in the synagogue right after he read that scripture? He said, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. He said the year of Jubilee, the year of freedom, grace, mercy, and peace is fulfilled in the day that they listened. He is the one who fulfills the promise that God made some 700 years before through the writing of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 61. Church, I've got some good news for you. The scripture is still fulfilled. Nothing has changed. The offer of freedom, grace, and mercy, peace with God is available today. The sin that you are holding on to can be forgiven. The crushed spirit that you have within you can be renewed. The debt that you owe will be forgiven if you trust and you believe in Jesus. If you repent of your sin and believe that Jesus is the son of God who died for your sins and rose again on the third day, you will be saved. 
Not only that, but Jesus' reading of the scripture stopped where they would have stopped short of where they wanted it to. He provided a gracious reading of the scripture. He only read part of the second verse and of Isaiah 61. The second part of it ends with the judgment of God, his vengeance raining down on the wicked. Why did Jesus stop reading right there? Because the message he was bringing was a message of hope, a message of grace, a message of peace. But that doesn't mean that the judgment isn't coming. It simply means that salvation has come. And for those who repent, they will not have to face the judgment, a future judgment. But those who do not repent will have a future judgment where they are measured against the perfect standard of God. They will be found wanting. If we have received the message of grace, our debt is paid. If we rejected it, we will receive vengeance, wrath, and the judgment of God. But right here, when Jesus steps on the scene, the primary point of his teaching was concerned with the message of grace and hope and peace with God. That is the message of Jesus. The proclamation and preaching of the good news that freedom and grace is available to all who believe. The good news of the gospel message comes from Jesus alone. Grace comes through faith in him alone. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. We can't achieve it. We can only simply receive it through faith. Forgiveness is available. Redemption is available. The debt has been paid. We need to trust and believe. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like not just good news. That sounds like great news. However, those present at Jesus' revelation don't know what to do with Jesus' claim. If you look at verse 22 through 24, it says this, They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do now here in our hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. There seems to be some crowd confusion here. They are confused about Jesus' claim to be the promised Messiah that offers life. They all knew about Jesus. He had grown up before their eyes. They knew his family. He's Joseph's son. How could he claim these things? How can he say that the scripture has been fulfilled today? They had a hard time believing that the kid they watched grow up could be the one who is going to fulfill this scripture. You see, even his brothers didn't believe. They were confused about him. And sadly, being familiar with Jesus is why so many people don't know Jesus as their savior. They're familiar with the Bible. They're familiar with Sunday school stories. They're familiar with the church calendar and church activities. They're familiar with the things of God, but they miss God entirely. Or even worse, they believe that the familiarity with God is enough. But Jesus doesn't care if you're familiar with the order of the church service or with the phrases and cues that come from Christianity. He doesn't care if you know about him. He wants you to know and recognize him for who he is. It's not knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. We have to look past what we think about Jesus to see who he is and who he actually claims to be. And in order to receive life, we have to accept him on his own terms, not ours. We can see this in our lives too. People get confused about us when we come to follow Jesus. Right? When Jesus saves us, it can be hardest to witness to those who are the closest to us. Whether they be parents or siblings or lifelong friends, they don't know what to think about your devotion to the Lord. 
Surely you can't be all that different. Surely what you believe can't be true. They reject you because of their familiarity with you. They don't believe that you can change. This is even more extreme when you are the son of God. They don't know what to do with Jesus' claims. But Jesus has a supernatural understanding of what's going on in their hearts. So he knows what they want. They want to witness some miracles. They want him to do what he did in Capernaum. And maybe they believe that will convince them. In Luke chapter uh, 4, verse 23 and 24, he says this, Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote the proverb to me, Doctor, heal yourself. What we have heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. And he also said to them, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. If they are to believe Jesus, they need to see something to believe him. The proverb, Dr. Heal Yourself, can be a little bit confusing, but it's explained by the following verse, right? They want Jesus to show them who he is through signs and wonders, not simply through the proclamation of his word. Now, there are a lot of people in certain denominations and sects of Christianity that put an emphasis on healings. They want you to, but I want you to see here that Jesus never went on a healing tour. He went on teaching tours and he healed as he went along. The healing came as a byproduct of the message. He healed en route to the teaching destination. Jesus's message is all about teaching and heralding, heralding and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. The healings of Jesus were always working in connection with Jesus's teaching. The healings were signs of the message. It's the teaching and the proclaiming of the gospel message that sets people free, not being healed. There were plenty of people Jesus healed that never believed. The power is in the message of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the message. Acceptance of the message of the gospel is where the true healing and the true restoration begins. If they don't believe the message, it doesn't matter how many miracles Jesus performed, they would never be satisfied. So what does Jesus do to prove his point? He, he knows the history of Israel, right? And so they continually rejected their prophets. So he points to two well-known stories about two well-known prophets, Elijah and Elisha in verses 25 through 27. He says this, but I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. In the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus here talks about prophets being rejected because he knows about the rejection of himself that's coming. If you don't know the, the stories that he just referenced, you can go back and study them. I'm only going to go over some highlights real quick. In both of these instances, the Israelites have started to worship false gods. And God raised up two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and they would preach about repentance and turning to God. They were rejected by the Israelites, and so they changed their strategy, and they went to do miracles and preach the message of repentance to those who the Israelites would have seen as unworthy of God's love and grace. Both the widow at Zarephath in Sidon and Naaman the Syrian were in a rough place. The widow did not have enough food to eat. And so Elijah goes to her and tells her, I, I need some bread to eat. Bring me some bread. Now, remember, he says this is a time of famine. 
So not very, there was not a lot of flour and a lot of wheat and a lot of oil. They did not have anything. So the widow didn't have anything but a small amount of flour and a small amount of oil. Yet she listened to Elijah. She believed Elijah and she made him some bread. And because she believed and she trusted in Elijah, he blessed her and her flour and her oil never ran out. With Naaman, Naaman, he had leprosy and he needed to be cleansed. So Elisha went to him and told him to wash in the Jordan River. But he didn't want to do that. He's like, I don't know about that. Yet eventually he did obey and he was washed clean. He believed and he was cleansed. Both of these examples, they were blessed and they were cleansed because of their belief and the trust in God's prophet. Their belief led to the miracle. Those in Jesus's presence didn't believe the message, just like the Israelites didn't believe the prophet's messages. So Jesus reminds them the blessings that went to the non-Israelite people was theirs instead of the people of God. I want you to see here, this would have been absolutely scandalous and even hard for them to hear. They knew these stories, but they didn't mean, that doesn't mean that they liked the stories. The prophets going to the widow and to Naaman was a judgment against the Israelites. The fact that God would bless the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people is ridiculous to their minds. Jesus is attacking the people's ethnic and their spiritual pride. They are prideful because they see themselves as superior to all other people, that they are God's chosen people who deserve God's blessing who deserve God's grace, who deserve his mercy and his compassion at the exclusion to the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, and the Gentiles. Now here's the thing. Let's not think that we're much better than the Israelites. You see, this week in a Bible study, we were talking about uh, God's grace and how sometimes we maybe get so prideful that we believe that there are people that we know that don't deserve God's grace. But God desires that all types of people were saved your enemies, those people you see are see as evil, those people you see as wicked, those who believe differently than you do, those who seem so far out outside of God's good graces that they could never come to know salvation. It's arrogant to believe that you deserve God for God to save you because you were a quote unquote good person. God doesn't save you on the basis of your works. He didn't look at you and see someone who was a good fit for his team. He looked at you and saw a sinner who needed grace. You weren't and aren't allowed or aren't saved because of what you do, but simply because of who he is and the grace that he extended to you. God is calling all who will humble themselves enough to trust him to believe. The problem with these Israelites that Jesus is preaching to is that there isn't any humility. So Jesus is going to leave them and preach to those who are humble enough to accept his word. But, he, but not before they try to kill him. Verses 28 and 30. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. There's a murderous mob here. You see, being confronted by Jesus did not sit well with those in the attendance at the synagogue. Those who welcomed him and praised him were ready to kill him. They were enraged at the thought that Jesus would claim to be the Messiah, that 
and would confront their own pride. This event in Nazareth is a shadow of what's to come at the crucifixion. The religious handing Jesus over to be put to death on a hill outside of Jerusalem, praising him one minute on that Palm Sunday and then crucifying him the next on Friday. But at this time, it wasn't time for Jesus to die. We're not sure how it happened, but Jesus was able to escape their anger. It wasn't his time to die. His mission of proclaiming the good news had just started and wasn't going to be over anytime soon in his own town. He was destined to die on a hill, not in Nazareth, but in Jerusalem, where his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin, where his death, where death was defeated, where the grave was overcome, where we can turn to the cross and find grace and forgiveness where his body was broken and his blood was shed so that you and I can find life in his name. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.